Hi, I'm H.D. Chambers, and you're listening to Impact Ed. I want to thank all of those of you who are uh, either listening uh, or watching this episode. As always, uh, myself, our school board, our district is appreciative of those of you who have interest in our school district and have interest in things related to public education. And if you've listened to us at all, you know that we talk about all kinds of topics that either specifically about public ed or in some degree impact education of of our kids. So today we're talking with a gentleman that I've gotten to know over the last, I don't know, nine or 10 months, I guess, through the uh, COVID experience, uh, Dr. Eric Borwinkle. And I'm going to let him introduce himself and tell a little bit about himself uh, in one second and why I believe, uh, well, I don't believe, I know that that this conversation is going to be of critical importance to staff members and to adults across the, the community and to our listening audience as it relates to the vaccines that are currently being distributed and the vaccines that are currently uh, getting close to being distributed. And uh, so today's conversation is with, with Dr. Borwinkle, and we're going to talk about a lot of things COVID-related, but we, we want to spend some time maybe answering some questions you may have in your mind about the vaccine or the vaccines and the a little bit of history behind that because there's a lot of a lot of questions that have come up. So hopefully, hopefully this will be beneficial and helpful to everyone. So Eric, thank you again uh, for joining us. And if you don't mind, maybe just talk a little bit about yourself and and right. kind of the relevance that your role that you've been playing professionally and how it how it's become at the forefront right now. To be honest with you. Well, thank you, HD, and uh, thank all the listeners to um, Impact Ed. It's a real pleasure to be here. Like a lot of us, that you know, the road between a a small town sort of farm boy and being a dean is a, a long and twisted road. I am a, a product of public education, and I'm also a, a product of, of state university systems, which I'm, I'm very proud of both of those things. So I was, you know, I was born in Ohio and went to the University of Cincinnati. And, you know, I, I went to Cincinnati because it was relatively small. <laughs> And yeah. I wasn't really used to big cities, and I, I didn't want to go to, um, you know, Ohio State or whatever. Then I, from there, I went to the the other side over at Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan, and from there I moved directly to Texas, uh, and I've never looked back. So I've I've been at um, the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston, really for 33 years now, which is really hard to believe. It's gone extremely fast. And you're the dean. Um, what are, you're the dean of health sciences. I am. I am, and um, so I've kind of rose through the ranks um, from somebody who was, you know, 26 years old at the time. I was the youngest professor in all of the UT system, or youngest faculty member in UT system, <laughs> and um, I rose all the way through to being a professor and didn't duck at the right moment, and therefore I'm now the dean. I'm the proud and, and humble. You know, I'm humbled to be the dean of the um, University of Texas Health Science Center, or now called UT Health, uh, School of Public Health. And, and the schools it is very different than many um, schools or universities that you think about. You know, that even in, we're sitting in Houston, Texas right now, and there's, there's multiple medical schools. But across the state, at the, in UT, there's only one School of Public Health. And I've got campuses here in Houston, up in Dallas, and uh, San Antonio, Austin, Brownsville, and El Paso. And, you know, Texas is a big state, and you know you drive from here to El Paso, you're you're halfway to Los Angeles. Um, but it gives us a, I'd say, a unique perspective, really, of, of health, the health of Texas, the health of Texans, 
um, and it, which has been very important as we now turn in the discussion and, and you know, sort of my journey and how in the heck did I get involved in, in, in COVID? Um, let me first say to your listeners that I'm not a traditional infectious disease epidemiologist. It turned out I was trained in statistics. I'm quite good in, in mathematics when I was younger. Um, and, and so I understand numbers. I understand numbers and the dynamics of numbers. Uh, but the most important thing is I really value working with people um, and interdisciplinary teams and how, and how you bring together statisticians, epidemiologists, physicians, computer scientists, and, um, and make sure every one of them is valued and understands the mission. And, and so when COVID came on the scene, I very quickly realized that there was enormous need, uh, first in terms of modeling, um, and we did a lot of modeling and prediction, you know, even, even in the very earliest days when, you know, your listeners probably can remember when COVID was something that was in Seattle and very tragic uh, experience in a nursing home in the Seattle area and also in New York. Um, but it was inevitable it would be in Texas. In fact, it, it would be wherever your listeners are, which I understand are really all over the world. Um, you know, there isn't a place where COVID is missed. And so really, it was quite an experience really then to go from, you know, first modeling and then analyzing the trends in, in our populations, the, the local health departments, including our state health departments, and frankly, across the state, uh, they tend to be under budgeted and understaffed. And in, in before the pandemic, you know, they did a lot of work, you know, for example, in you know, restaurant um, health, just a, the public health is just a, extremely diverse. Um, but they didn't have really the expertise for a lot of analytics. And so we, we basically offered that. And then, now more recently, it's been kind of interesting that um, I skipped this important chapter. My training was primarily in genetics, um, and, and it, which is a strange story in and of itself. It's, uh, I actually thought I would probably go into agricultural genetics and, you know, grow the or breed the next strain of corn or right. or became very interested in human genetics and how we can, you know, understand you know, variation in humans and how that contributes to variation in um, disease susceptibility. Now we think about COVID and how how we um, think about, you know, a person is infected with a virus and how would they how they respond to that virus. And and so we're interested then in, in really the sequence of the virus. And that's, you know, we'll talk, I hope we can talk a little bit about these new variants that might be arising. And then also the final um, kind of common as I just touch on a number of subjects is, is really the, the technology to the, these vaccines um, that we're now seeing, you know, I think it's important for all of us, myself included, to remind ourselves that it's typically takes about 10 years, um, you know, be between the, the onset of an epidemic to the time you might think of having a, a vaccine. And we, we've compressed that 10 years in the case of COVID down to 10 months, which is really a scientific miracle. And I, I think all of us should pause for a minute and think about the, just the amazing advances that are around us in science that have allowed this to happen. So, so that is my sort of, you know, kind of a strange journey right. um, to, to come to this point. And it's, it's a lot of work, um, but it is also a lot of fun. I mean, COVID has 
thrust a lot of people in the healthcare profession into the public's eye into this just because of uh, everybody wants to know. And, and you're you, you talking about your background in genetics and mathematics. Uh, I'll just tell those that are listening or watching this that being a part of these conversations every week uh, with you and Dr. Callender and, and others from the, the Texas Medical Center, because I, I always wondered where did the where did the data come from? Where did the numbers come from? You know, where did the you know, literally down to zip code about the the transmission rates and all that. I don't want to get into that because it, first of all, give me a headache trying to think about all of it. I, I guess the data that you guys use and your staff uses to project and to predict and to to try to give physicians who are working on this a, a, a fighting chance to to maybe head it off at the pass. We always Wayne Gretzky was always asked, you know, what made you such a great hockey player? And he always talked about how he played the game with where the hockey the puck was going to be versus where it was. That's right. Do you, do you see yourself in that kind of regard where you're trying to tell us where we're going so we can prepare for it as opposed to where we've been? Or that, That's absolutely right, and I use that Gretzky quote. Yeah, I've heard you. I've heard you. Yeah. I've heard you. I, yeah, yeah, I, I wanted to see that. if you recognized that. <laughs> <laughs> I use that Gretzky quote. I'll just give our listeners just one example of, um, you know, now that we're we're rolling out vaccine and we're, you know, it, it's now February the uh, 26th, I guess that's right, and uh you know, we're, we're at an important point here because we've been in a situation, uh, and I guess as all of your listeners are in this situation, where we just frankly have been having a shortage of vaccine. But now we see the amount of vaccine ramping up, and it's ramping up really, you know, for two very important reasons. Number one is those that are approved. Um, as we talk today, that means the, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine. Those two companies in partnership with others are ramping up production. And the other is we're bringing on, hopefully knock on wood, uh, two new vaccines, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and also, you know, one from AstraZeneca. So we'll be able to, we'll see an uptick in, in the availability of vaccine. Why I'm going through this is really these analyses then are helping both healthcare and public health, local public health departments, to understand where are the geographic regions that have been most impacted. Because you want to get the vaccine to those people who need it most, those people that are very high risk of disease. So right now I'd say most of the analyses we're doing are really predicting when we make this transition of having more available vaccine of how to get it to those people who are most high risk and most in need. And that's just one example. Let's talk about the, the vaccines themselves, because you made a comment earlier about how we took typically a 10 year process and made it turn it into something less than a year. Uh, yeah. I'm just curious, what is the process for vaccines? I mean, you you know, you take a pandemic. I don't I don't, I don't know how to say an average pandemic. Take okay. a take a <laughs> pandemic in, in the past. One, what took so long? And then two, why in this case was it able to be done so quickly? Yeah. yeah and that's a. It's a great question. First, let's step back and how it's quote unquote usually done. Although it's, you know, you know, often what happens is scientists either have a way of killing the foreign substance. Um, let's say, you know, it's a virus, they, they debilitate it so it can't replicate or they isolate a particular protein. You know, let's, you know, thinking about this, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, that's the virus that causes COVID. I mean, everybody's seen cartoons. In fact, I saw recently a cupcake at a bakery shop that was, in the, you know, that was decorated to look like the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Yeah, we've, put, we, we've celebrated now. It's a celebrity. <laughs> That's right. You know? 
And so it has these um, spike proteins. So, you know, for example, so typically what happens is um, the scientists who are working, they isolate the protein or they, they kill the virus. They inject that into an individual Let's say we'll go all the way to the vaccine then. And then your body recognizes that as a foreign substance. Your body has um, amazing abilities to recognize foreign substances and has ways of, of combating those infections, either by the production of antibodies or the um, sort of initiation and revving up of, they're called T cells, and those cells can help combat the infection. And so that's really the way a traditional vaccine works. It's the, the word is attenuated. It really means the virus is basically killed, um, so it, it can't replicate. And you know, and for or for example, a very famous example is uh, remember the stories about you know the smallpox vaccine and people using cowpox. So they mm -hmm. basically used a relative that came from a cow didn't really inject it and had a scrape and, you know, put it in the person through some sort of a scrape. And that had a, uh, an immune response that helped protect them later from smallpox. So that's sort of the traditional route. But in this particular case, what was happening is people were trying to figure out, you know, you, isolating a protein or, or killing a virus is just full of figuring out how to do is, is a lot of work. It's a huge amount of work. You think about the DNA sequence itself, um, and it goes back to, again, being trained in geneticists, the, the genetic code is, on the one hand, one of the most amazing things in, in, in nature, but on the other hand, it's the, it's the simplest and most boring book you could ever read. It goes A-T-G-C, A-T-G-C. There's only four letters, um, and it turns out in 2020 or 21, you know, we have the technology to produce a lot of DNA synthesize it. So now what was done and, and what the actual vaccine from Pfizer and Moderna is, if you remember high school biology, DNA makes RNA that makes protein. So instead of injecting the protein, they just inject some of this RNA. They inject the RNA into your arm and your own body then <laughs> takes the RNA and, and synthesizes the spike protein. And so now you've actually have this foreign substance produced by your own body, by the way, um, in your arm. And, um, and it turned out that companies, many companies, um, including Pfizer, for example, were, were experimenting with this. And so when the opportunity came to put that new technology into production, they were ready. They were already experimenting with the idea prior to COVID. That's right, prior to COVID. And so when the when the virus, the virus was very quickly isolated and sequenced in China originally before right. it even entered the US and we had the sequence, they quickly could identify the spike protein as sticking on the outside. They could very quickly synthesize that RNA and then very quickly start to experiment with the safety of getting into your arm and then again um, trying to ramp up production. And we should probably come back to that for a minute, but I want to take a little bit of a sidebar. You know, there's a lot of interest in these new variants, whether it's the UK yeah. variant or whether it's South African or New York, California. And it's going to continue, by the way. Well, you know, well, this, um, this is this is what viruses do. Naturally. That's what viruses they, do. They they're, they're going to mutate to try right. to continuously propagate them, 
themselves and escape your immunity. That's that's their life, you know? Right. But the neat thing is, is now that we have a safe vaccine, because it's this RNA base that's injected into your arm, I don't want to say it's easy, because, but it's, it's as close to easy as you can get. All they have to do is tweak the sequence of that vaccine to update it for the new variants. So many of your listeners, HD, are, are, have already heard that we may be seeing next year a booster, or even in the fall, a booster, or the, the formulation for the vaccine may be changing over time. And that's natural. So what, they're, what the companies are doing is tweaking the sequence of that RNA to make sure that the antibodies that are produced will recognize um, these, these new variants as they pop up. We should all, and the listeners should remind ourselves, that's really not that different than what happened in the flu vaccine. Right. You, you always hear every year that there are scientists, a lot of them at the CDC, they're, they're analyzing what flus are out there and they're going to formulate the vaccine for this coming year. And that's, that's really what's happening here is we're looking what are the, what are the sequences in the, of the coronavirus that are out there and how do we best formulate the sequence of, of the RNA that's going to go into people's arms. So I'm, I'm actually quite optimistic about the role of the vaccines. I do want to talk a little bit about, because in the first few weeks in particular, it, was, it almost became a spectator sport to criticize the rollout of the vaccine. But I think we all have to just remind ourselves that this occurred so fast. And the trials, by the way, did not go fast. Those trials were done very carefully to show that this vaccine is safe and effective. So don't think just because I use the word fast that it was done either in a sloppy yeah. way. Well, I think a lot of pe- um, a lot of people were, were worried about that because that's right because something must have been skipped or some process must have been skipped. Uh, therefore, yeah. I'm going to be afraid to take it until a bunch of people take it and prove that they're not going to get sick. Was the timing of trials any different for COVID than they would have been for? Uh, something else, or, or can you even answer that? They may, they may all be different, I guess. They're all different, but the, these trials were different. They were different for t- two reasons. One is it won't surprise any of us that there was um, a strong feeling of urgency. Yeah, since, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. COVID is killing a lot of people. I would guess that almost all of your listeners know someone, or I'm sorry to say, have a loved one who has died of COVID. And so there was a sense of urgency. The other thing, the other reason it was different is this RNA has to be kept extremely cold, minus 80 degrees centigrade. That's really, really cold. The logistics of moving this vaccine around. Yeah, to put it in perspective, it's colder than last week, right? That's it colder. was a lot colder than last <laughs> week, even though um, for those listeners who are not, you know, <laughs> we're not used to cold weather here in South Texas yeah. or the Houston area. Yeah. So it, uh, it tripled us. I say we're well into the distribution of the vaccines. I mean, we're we're into it in terms of time. Obviously, uh, not nearly the percentage of our population has has been in, has gotten their shot yet, as that, that you would like. The process and the the role that the people like yourself and others that are in who, who studied this. I'm um, thank you for the clarification because there's there's uh, my own self. I I was wondering. I said, my goodness, was. Was it the sense of urgency or was it countries working together? I've talked to some doctors that have said for the first time in a long time, countries actually work together probably more so than they've ever done before. At least scientists. Is right. that is that true? Or 
Um, the scientists actually in the trenches do a great yeah. job working together. Yeah. Um, <laughs> government sharing data often less so. Um, and so, you know, having, having the trials and having data that was shared internationally is something new. And again, it was a sense of urgency that people, we needed to cooperate. Um, well, go back to the rollout. You were, you, were, you were getting ready to talk about the massive, the expectations that were built up were almost going to be impossible to be met. In other words, there was over over expectation and under delivery, which is cardinal yeah. sin for for sales. But yeah, uh, would you agree with that? I don't know if where it came from. It may have come from our each one of our hopes that it was going to ramp up quickly. Yeah. Um, but again, because of how quick the discovery process, the trials, frankly, to to produce and distribute tens of millions of vials of this vaccine. There was enormous production, not difficulties, but logistics of all the logistics that had to occur. And they all had to occur at the right time, the right place. And it had to be done in a sterile way. I mean, even those little tiny glass vials that the, um, that the vaccine is, is put into and then shipped in frankly, what looks like a pizza box. If you haven't seen one yet, it really does look like a pizza box. And they come to us and, you know, we put them in these minus 80 freezers. This all had to work so well. And it just took time. You know, for those of you who follow the news that, you know, Europe, for example, is behind. And a lot of that is because the plant that is producing the Pfizer vaccine is, is in Belgium. And that had to just be totally retooled to do this. Um, so there was production difficulties, and and again, it's um, just a whole lot of logistics yeah. that has to work. I wonder, if, are there enough freezers to get that type of freezer to hold that many vaccines? I mean, do we have enough of those? Um, we we do, and and I can tell you, in Houston, we're in good shape because of the Texas Medical Center. I mean, I have about 120 really? of those freezers because of my own work that uh, are typically. You know, we, you know, sample individuals from literally all over the world um, to isolate their DNA, to sequence their DNA, to look at risk of disease. And so we have blood and plasma and DNA. And so what we did is very quickly reorganize things and freed up uh, five or six freezers that could be used by the Texas medical institutions and our local public health departments. And you may have heard that one of the local health departments had a bit of a problem with the freezer and had to scramble um, both to very quickly get get arms to get the vaccine that was already prepared and then find a new freezer. So it's um, the logistics of this are difficult in a in a, in a city that has uh, for the listeners that Houston is the home of the Texas Medical Center which is one of the largest medical centers in the world and one of the best. And so there's an enormous clinical enterprise here, but there's also an enormous research enterprise. Yeah. So we're, we're well prepared for this. I think where it's going to get difficult is making sure rural America is served. And that's why the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine couldn't be coming out at a better time. Those two vaccines only need to be refrigerated. And uh, so... Because again, having an ultra cold, what we call an ultra cold freezer, it's it's a it's a heavy lift. What's the difference between a, a vaccine that only requires one one shot versus those that require two shots? What can you explain? What's happening there? Sure. So what you want from any vaccine is you want 
what's called an immune response. You know, you're, you're actually taking a needle and injecting a foreign substance into your body. Your body recognizes it as, as foreign and it begins to produce antibodies. Um, and those antibodies then, we hope, stay around for, let, let's say, a, approximately a year. That's why you, you have to get a flu vaccine, for example, every year because of the age of those, the, how long does one's immune response last? You need to have the substance that you're in, injecting um, basically induce enough of a response that it protects you, number one, and it protects you for approximately a year, number two. And then for reasons that are not always well understood, and they're even when they're understood, they're very complicated, some of those vaccines or these foreign substances, they don't elicit an immune response that's high enough and long enough lasting. And so it takes two shots, you know, that initial shot and what some people then call a booster to get enough of an, of an immune response and get a long enough immune response. Both of those are important. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine, because of peculiarities of what's being injected, again, the, the spike protein, the clinical trials show that it uh, has a, a high enough response and lasts long enough um, that you only need a single shot. Um, so that's a, another valuable um, advance in, in terms of making sure we get literally tens and hundreds of millions of people vaccinated. I do wanna make a clear statement, and I'll probably repeat this. All of these vaccines, when you think about protecting ourselves from serious disease and serious consequences of COVID, all of these vaccines work extremely well. And in fact, to my surprise, they all work much, much better than a typical flu vaccine. So they, they all work. And so my uh, strong advice to, to the listeners is when you're offered a chance for the vaccine, take it. Very simple. When you're offered a chance to, to, to receive the COVID vaccine, take it. Um, it. It is shown to protect from serious disease. It is shown to protect your own life. Um, so take it, um, you know, and don't kind of don't overthink or try to game the system that I'm going to take vaccine, you know, one versus two versus three versus four. They all work. Yeah, They all work. People that want the vaccine, obviously right now it's quantity. So it's just a matter of getting enough of them and and um, and getting to a point where you, you do have herd immunity, which will take a while. So you're you're saying that potentially this becomes something of a an annual thing that people we're gonna have to look at because there's there's I heard Dr. Fauci or someone used the term zero COVID. There is no such thing as not anymore, right? There's no such thing as zero COVID. Just like there's no such thing as zero influenza. Right. I, I don't I don't think we should be thinking about a zero COVID. It, it, it's truly a pandemic. Yeah. And we've shown that it can be controlled. I think that's an important point, too, to make. Don't think that we're going to beat COVID by vaccines alone. You know, we're, we're in a period where the vaccine certainly help us, helping us. I'm extremely enthusiastic about the vaccine. But we're still going to need to be wearing masks through the summer. We're still going to need to limit so, you know, social distancing and avoiding um, large crowds. If you've been exposed and your public health department calls you to participate in contact tracing, please participate. It's important, particularly as these new variants 
um, are popping up and you may have been exposed to one, it's important that we try to wall that off and, and nip it in the bud as fast as possible. Um, don't tell your local public health department that your name is Donald Duck or George Washington or whatever. They're, they're collecting the information for the good of your health and the health of others. And as somebody who works very closely with these data, it's not being collected for nefarious purposes. Yeah. You know, and so it's important that we all participate, it really is. Yeah, there's always a always a lack of or a distrust at certain levels of government bureaucracy and we we I mean we all have to deal with that. I, yeah. You know, I've, I've heard people say, well, as soon as we get rid of COVID, as soon as the vaccine is out there and COVID is going away, uh, there, there's no such thing as COVID going away. And I hope everyone understands at some point, at some point, whenever society gets back to a, to some sense of comfort, you know, I'm not going to use the term normal, but when we get back to a sense of comfort where large groups can gather without having masks on and large groups can gather without having socially distance at whatever point that is, yeah. well, I think we need to keep repeating to people that there's still going to be cases of COVID. It just won't be won't be like it is right now, obviously, you know. That's right. That's right. And um, yeah. And, and again, I'm I'm an optimistic, I think, by character, but I'm also optimistic thinking about the science of this, that we right. will get to a point. You know, I'm frustrated. I get frustrated. I want to go visit my kids. Um, we'll get to a point where we, we can and we can with relative safety. And uh, it'll be, again, it'll be a combination of things that are going to get us to that point, including, and it's going to be including vaccines and periodic um, boosters, et cetera. But we can handle that. It's a math problem, right? It is. At some point. I mean, I I don't mean to to be insensitive about the, what's occurred to over 500,000 Americans, but it does become a math problem. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You use this word herd immunity. It's important, you know, to kind of think about that a little bit. Well, first of all, what is particularly for Texans, I think we understand herd immunity. For those of you who vaccine, vaccinate cattle, if you miss a few, you're okay. Right. Whatever bug you're trying to save the herd from, if it can't be transmitted from animal to animal to animal, you, you, you'll basically knock it down that those few unvaccinated animals in the herd, you know, typically are safe. And humans are really no different. And so if we can, in out in the population, if you think about wherever your listener is, you know, think about your community. If you can get 75 or 80 percent of the people that have animals, then, you know, you'll start to enjoy um, a certain amount of protection. There's a couple of important points in that sentence. Number one is herd immunity. It's not like you're you cross a line, let's say 80%, and you, you didn't have it, and over the line you have it. It's a, it's a quantitative thing. We're not seeing it yet, but we're going to start to see it here in, the, I would say, the next month. You're going to start to see the impact of having larger and larger numbers of people vaccinated. The other well, point is we're not starting from zero. Right, um, right. We're not starting from zero. That, um, you know, we... We are carrying out the actually the nation's largest what's called seroprevalence. We're looking at who has antibodies to the naturally occurring infection. And in, in Texas, I can tell you the average across the state is about 22% of us. So let, let's 22% have, have, antibodies. have the antibodies as yeah. a result of having COVID. They have had COVID, whether they know it or not. Most right. of them don't know it, by the way. I, I, Most of them answer the question, have, you know, because we asked them. Have you had COVID? We also ask them about symptoms. 
And most of them, you know, they, they say they, they've never had COVID, et cetera, and they have antibodies. <laughs> um, and so we're not starting from zero. And again, let's come back to the, the importance of topic of, of children. The frequency in children is even higher. Um, the frequency of children um, in Texas with antibodies is about 30. So it's not quite a third. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just because, you know, kids, fortunately for all of us, you know, they, they obviously do get the virus, but most of them are asymptomatic. Yeah. Um, and, you know, yeah. what we have to worry about with kids is them taking it home to grandma and, make, and giving the virus to grandma. And she gets very um, seriously ill. But the kids, it's about 30%. And so, you know, when we think about herd immunity, we're, we're really thinking about the natu- what I call the naturally occurring antibody, because I can't think of a better word, yeah. plus the antibodies from the vaccine. So we're, we're going to get there. Good. Dr. Bowenkel has been one of the more optimistic people uh, as, as we've gone through these conversations. But, but I, and I say that not jokingly, uh, because you do deal with the data, the, the numbers and and. And while there's some emotion that gets involved in that, the numbers are what the numbers are. And uh, all of the information that, that the county puts out in the city of Houston and all the the transmission rate and the positivity rates and all those things kind of come from your shop. They, they come from, from you accumulating this information to the best of your ability and trying to replicate that. Is that, is that, is that fair in terms of what your responsibilities have been in that regard? That's what we do. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate, like I said, that we analyze these data and try to make a picture of the data that our healthcare, our um, workers, our elected officials, school leaders like yourself, HD, you know, that um, so you can make better decisions. I'm very, um, very careful myself. And and I, I talk to my team a lot about it's, you know, we don't make policy. You know, we try to take data turn that data into information and then present that information in an unbiased way so other people can pull the levers of either pull the levers of government or pull the levers of a business or of the school system to respond to the best information that we can provide. That's what I see is our goal in this. And, and you know, what we do is not perfect. I can tell you the data is not always perfect. And if you want to talk about how to make mistakes, I, I think I wrote the book out. Um, but, um, but we do the best we can to provide accurate and timely information so other people can make the decisions they need to make. I think the other important point is this pandemic is, it surprises all of us almost, you know, it used to be weekly, probably now it's, it's monthly. It changes. You know, we're, we're here in, in February. The, that peak we saw in January was different than the peak we saw in summer. Right. And it was different than the peak we saw in March. And so you have to first remain humble. Don't think you know it all. Yeah. And, um, yeah. and uh, we remain humble and keep analyzing, keep learning. Um, so hopefully we can stay ahead of this. And we're, we're concerned about spring break coming up. I mean, you, the surge in January in large part was a result of Christmas and New Year's and family gatherings and yeah. where you're more susceptible to, to not wearing a mask and not socially distancing. So we want to continue talking about the safety and security of people because uh, because of spring break coming up. Right. Absolutely right. That we can't, um, particularly now, I, you know, there's been a lot of analogies. I tend not to like sort of the military analyses, but I think right now it's, we're in a race. We're in mm-hmm. a race with, um, with the virus. 
And we have the tools now to um, win this race. And the, the tools, the best tools we have are the vaccine and the public health measures that we can win this. So please, everyone, including myself and UHD, is please now, you know, as we see light at the end of the tunnel, let's not let our guard down and um, let's keep the numbers down. You know, we're on this downward slope that we saw, you know, for, for this region, we entered it around January the 10th. Um, here we are in, you know, sort of late February. Let's keep driving the numbers down because as the numbers get lower and lower, there's a couple things that are going to happen. Number one is contact tracing is going to work. Mm -hmm. You know, it's actually going to work. When you yep. have small numbers or yep. relatively small numbers, you can actually do a lot of good contact tracing and, and, yeah, and walk the virus off. That's, but that's been a problem. Is, that's been that's been a big problem in schools. Yeah, is you just got teachers and kids all over the place, and it's it's hard to it's hard to successfully and accurately contact yeah. trace. No question. Right, and the other is a, there's a strange phenomenon as we drive the the frequency the effect infection down. I'll say this slowly because you got to kind of wrap your head around this. The actual numbers of viruses that are out there are smaller. And when the numbers of viruses are smaller, there's less of a chance to accumulate new mutations. And so we got to get ahead of these new mutations. And so if we can basically keep these numbers low, treat the people that have, treat the infections we have, wall off the new ones, we can get ahead of these new variants and get ahead of this virus. That's going to be the key. And, um, and before, I think we were a little bit of hamsters on the wheel. Um, you know, yeah. we we're just, there's just so much infection out there. And, you know, HD, every once in a while, you, you'd see these maps, you know, what can you do in the whole, we talk I know about everything's red. Yeah, everything's know, red. We talk about hot spots, the entire region's red. You know, what are know. you going to do? Know. Um, know. You know, it's, I'm sorry for laughing, but it's just, I, it's, it's crazy. You just, you get yourself wrapped up in it, but that's not the case now. Right. We are, we are driving the numbers down. The whole area is not red. So let's uh, let's double down and, and, and make an effort. You made a comment about uh, one of the, one of the things that we've learned is that human beings do have control over this uh, to, to a certain extent or to a large extent. I mean, our yeah. behaviors and our our decision making and all that. Uh, before we wrap up, talk talk a little bit about. What, what have we learned from this? I mean, not only the scientific field, but but what you just said, human behavior, the way in which humans, <laughs> there is no genetic code that can control that, it seems. Well, let, let's just step back for a minute and talk about the, um, in the Houston area, we saw a big peak in the summer. They came down and then we saw one and, and after Christmas that went up and now we're coming down. And, the, and this, these peaks came down before the vaccine. And so the important part is the, the vaccine didn't bring them down. We brought them down by our behavior. And so I, I don't, you know, whether it's fear, which I actually think is, you know, it's a fear is a powerful motivator. And so I believe, you know, fear was a factor. We, you know, fear for ourselves and our loved ones, fear for our neighbors. You know, we, we see the numbers go high. We hear about it on the news. So we all behave ourselves. We all wear masks. We avoid restaurants or, or larger gatherings, whatever. And then we see the numbers come down and, and then we, we, we let our guard down. We think it's okay to, to have the neighbors over or whatever. And then they go right back up. Um, it's like a roller coaster. So human behavior 
has been a, a powerful driver in all of this. Very but nice. I also think we have to be careful. I started maybe it's good good to loop back towards the end. Is you know I'm very fortunate. I'm very lucky. If I think that I have COVID, I can go get tested. I may be positive and I can stay home for 10 days and I can work on my computer at home. I'm very, very lucky. There's a lot of people in our community. They can't do that. They can't do that. And so we, we, all, we need to keep that in mind. We need to develop a system that, that protects all of us. We all do what we can do to fight this virus. And, yeah. um, and we just need to remember that. I agree. So, Eric, you mentioned when you introduced yourself, you were a product of, of public schools or a public education. And and I would venture to say that, I don't know, 80, 90 percent of the men and women who were responsible for for such a uh, miraculous creation of this vaccine in such a short amount of time are probably products of public education. And I don't I'm not bashing private or uh, what I'm saying is, is that the criticalness of the public education system to the success and to fighting off something like this, yeah, like the, the, the COVID virus. Would you spend just a second, because uh, you and I have talked about this before, just a second about the opportunities for students in the health science field. And, and maybe people don't realize what you do and, and they may not even realize what genetics is or the interest in that because they don't even realize that. But talk just a second so kids that are listening to this may, sure. may benefit from, you know, I may want to look into that. Yeah, well, first, thanks for asking, because I, I remain passionate about education. You know, I, I am a dean of a school. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I think it's interesting if you just, in your mind, play back the last 30 minutes of all the things we've talked about. There's science, there's traditional science and biology, there's healthcare, the traditional business of, of healthcare of physicians and nurses. There's analyzing the data. Uh, there's the communications. Um, how do you communicate behaviors? There's engineering. Play a YouTube video of a production facility for one of these vaccines. And, you know, don't think about the biology of the vaccine. Just think about that little bottle moving down through there and all the little, you know, all the little parts. Um, that, that there's just enormous opportunity for people, all people, in health and in science and in engineering. And I think too often as I go and visit schools, for example, when people think about healthcare, all they think about is a doctor. You know, I, I want to be a doctor. I have many friends that are doctors, and I love the physicians that I work with. But it's important to think about the extremely broad availability of sort of opportunity. I think that's the right word, just the, the broad availability of opportunities in healthcare and science for all of the, the young listeners out there. But I just want to give you a, a reassuring message that those opportunities are available to you, to each and every one of you. You don't have to basically, unless you want to, you know, spend like I did, spend a quarter of my life in school, school. Yeah. you know, you don't have to do that. There's, there's just a lot of opportunity because it, it literally takes a team. If you recall, when I introduced myself as I think my strongest asset, I'm not that smart. Come on. My strongest asset is really the ability to talk to people, to, to rally the troops along a common vision, to get people to see the vision and get everybody involved in that vision. 
all the way from people in, in sort of the circle that advises me, the people analyzing the data, to the people that actually make it happen. So to the, the students that may be listening to this, I don't care if you're in elementary school or in college, really think about the, the science and, and healthcare and engineering as open to you. I think too many times people think it's the reach is too high. Either I'm not smart enough or I don't have the money for it or the time for it. Um, I can assure you that you are smart enough to do this. There are opportunities out there for scholarships. Um, there's community colleges. There's now training opportunity, vocational training opportunities in these areas. Um, so I would encourage you, if you're interested in these kinds of things, including genetics, by the way. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know, I, I'm fascinated. You know, when I was a student in, in genetics, you typically either went into agriculture or you were interested in very serious diseases, and there are very few opportunities. But now, because of the biotech industry, um, has just exploded. Mm -hmm. And those biotech in companies are hiring. They're hiring at all levels. They're hiring in, in, you know, many different components. It's not just biology or medicine. It's like I said, it's to move this vaccine from discovery into a person's arm. The number of steps is just mind boggling and the number of variable steps are mind boggling. And, you know, each and every one of these, of the kids that are listening, there's a role there for you. I assure you of that. Great. Great. Well, thank you for that, Eric. I, I appreciate that. And I know that wasn't our topic today, and but but we I have spent two years of doing impact ed episodes, and I'd probably the most common topic I've talked to people about is opportunities for young men and young women, yeah. particularly from our district and particularly from uh, low income areas and areas that have large populations of non English speaking kiddos, and 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 I'm, I'm hoping I'm not going to call it a silver lining, but I'm, I'm hoping that a lesson that some people learn out of this this uh, experience is that some of our younger people could look at roles and responsibilities like yours and say, you know what, that interests me. That's, yeah. I didn't know, I didn't even know that existed. And that's an ongoing challenge we have with, with students today is trying to find them something they could actually be excited about. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, thank well, you, sir. I, I'm lucky. I'll, yeah. I'll be clear. I love my work. I me love too. my work. Me too. I, I'm the same way. I've, I'm extremely blessed in that regard. So, Eric, thank you very much. Uh, I really do. And I just want everyone to know Eric and his colleagues in the medical center have been just just outstanding resources for us. And I know that he mentioned earlier he was doing everything he could do to help us make decisions and do our jobs. And and he has he and and I know he's got a team underneath him that that it works. Anyway, thank you for coming on and, and sharing your insight. Uh, it is appreciated. Thank you, H.D. And thank you to all the listeners of Impact Yet. Appreciate uh, the opportunity. Absolutely. So this has been Impact Ed. I'm H D Chambers with Ailey ISD. Thank you guys. Have a great have a great day and we'll uh, we'll talk to you soon. This has been an AMP production.